I'm Dave Lawler, the author of Axios World. I started covering international affairs about a decade ago, and it would have been impossible to cover what was happening around the world without writing an awful lot about Vladimir Putin. But it was really two or three years ago that I decided to go deep into who this guy was and how he had changed the world. We were coming up on Putin's 20th anniversary in power, and I have always been fascinated by Putin's Russia, by the fact that this one man was making decisions that we were feeling all around the world. One of the first things I learned was that Putin, when he came into power, was sort of all things to all people. Everybody saw in this guy what they wanted to see. And over the last 22 years, he's really gone to places that we never thought he would. Several months ago, I started to wonder whether Putin might go further than he ever had before, not just nibbling at the edges of a neighboring country, but fully invading and going for the capital. We started getting these warnings from U.S. intelligence that more and more troops were headed to the border, that these were not ordinary military exercises. And then about a week before the invasion, Putin started making moves that seemed very ominous. We've been building to this point for at least eight years since Putin first made his move into Ukraine. But then, all at once, it was a full-scale invasion. We had this moment where Putin was announcing what he called a special military operation. You had explosions in Kyiv as soon as he finished speaking. Cities around the country were under attack. This was a full-scale Russian war on its neighbor, Ukraine. And at that point, we had entered an entirely different dimension, and one, to be frank, that I never expected we would get to. I'm Dave Lawler. I'm the world editor at Axios. For the past decade, I've covered global politics. I've traced Putin's rise to power and how he's wielded it. And I've covered every twist and turn in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'll share what I've learned, drawing on exclusive interviews with people who were with Putin as he took power and expanded it. I'll explain how Putin's invasion of Ukraine played out across three American presidencies, almost in slow motion, and then sped up suddenly in the span of a few days. I'll be joined by my Axios colleagues, including Jonathan Swan, who interviewed the president of Ukraine, to break down exactly how this invasion happened, where things stand, and how it's changing the world around us. From Axios, this is how it happened, Putin's invasion. Part one, how we got here. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin is a son of St. Petersburg. He was born in 1952. He didn't grow up in a political family, but he knew from a pretty young age that he wanted to join the KGB. The story goes that Putin turned up at a local KGB office and said he wanted to join. He was too young at the time, but they advised him to study law, saying that then he'd be of more use to the spy agency. And so that's what he did. He studied law, and then he joined the KGB. When the Iron Curtain began to crumble in 1990, he was in Dresden in East Germany, working in a KGB outpost there. Less than a decade on from the collapse of the Soviet Union, which Putin has called one of the great geopolitical tragedies of the last century, this guy, this mid-ranking KGB officer, was taking the oath of office as the president of Russia. How did he do that? How did this kind of anonymous, mid-ranking KGB officer suddenly rise to become the president of Russia. 
So after the wall came down in Germany, he returned to St. Petersburg. He started working in the city government there. He was sort of a fixer. He got this reputation as a guy who could get things done. He also got a bit of a reputation, allegedly, for corruption along the way. But that reputation as a man who could get things done brought him to Moscow, where he worked for Boris Yeltsin, who was the president at the time, and he rose remarkably quickly. He became intelligence chief. He was in charge of the successor of the KGB, the FSB. He became deputy prime minister, then prime minister. And on New Year's Eve 1999, he became the interim president of Russia. Here Putin is wishing peace and love to his country in the new millennium. And he's never given up power since. People who interacted with Putin in the years before he actually took power, some of them say they hardly noticed him. He's a pretty small man. He's not very expressive. He was relatively soft-spoken. He was not this energetic, charismatic politician. But he did have kind of this glint of steel in the way he handled himself. In his first address to the Russian people, he said, there will never again be a power vacuum in Russia. And so that was an indication of what he saw his role to be. In many ways, Putin was all things to all people in the early stage of his political career. I was able to speak with Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who's an oligarch. This is a guy who was put in jail by Putin and is now in exile. If you ask somebody like Khodorkovsky, this rich European-style businessman, Putin was like him. He was a westernizer. He was a reformer. He was going to build up the economy. If you ask his former KGB colleagues, of course, he was one of them too. But if you ask the Western officials he was dealing with, this was somebody that they viewed as at least somebody they could do business with, if not a potential ally. Remember George W. Bush said he'd looked into Putin's eyes and seen his soul. I looked the man in the eye. I found him to be very straightforward and trustworthy. Uh, we had a very good dialogue. I was able to um, get a sense of his soul. The U.S. officials I spoke to wouldn't go that far, but they certainly did see him as a modernizer. Even as Putin wanted to be seen as the modern face of a modern country, he never forgot about the Soviet history, and he certainly never forgot about the intervening decades. Putin viewed the 90s as almost a decade of humiliation for Russia. This was a country that had been one of two world powers. Suddenly, it was thrust into this era of uncertainty. It was, in his view, being taken advantage of by more powerful countries. And it was really pushed back into its own corner. Its sphere of influence started to evaporate around it. And so for Putin, this is an error that needs to be corrected. And it wasn't clear to anybody necessarily when he first came to power in 2000 that that was on his mind. By the early 2000s, Putin was really trying to impress Americans, actually. Bill Clinton went to Moscow and did a call-in radio show there. And so when Putin came to the U.S., he actually did the same thing on NPR. And with me at our bureau in New York City is Russian President Vladimir Putin. President Putin, welcome and thank you very much for appearing with us tonight on this broadcast. Thank you. So he was taking questions from Americans and really trying to put a friendly face on Russia. Our listener's name is Larry. Larry, what's your question? Good evening, President Putin. Good evening. TV was and is the dominant mode of communication in Russia, and Putin in his very early years in power decided 
pretty deliberately that he was going to bring TV under his control. So these independent television outlets that had made tens of millions of dollars for oligarchs, suddenly they were not independent. They were speaking the Kremlin line or they were going to be folded up. And so that was an early indication that Putin wanted control of the media. And he set about doing that within a couple years of becoming president. I spoke to Bill Burns, who's now the CIA chief, about arriving in Moscow in 2005 to become the U.S. ambassador there. He said he was seeing a more confident Putin and a pricklier Putin. So he would take officials to the Kremlin, and Putin would make them wait. When they got into the meeting, he would lecture them about Russia's history, about Russia's place in the world, and about what he saw as Western arrogance and overreach. So this was a Putin the U.S. knew was not an ally necessarily, would probably never be a close friend, even if they did still think that this was somebody they could do business with. By 2006, it became clear that Putin would silence his critics at any cost. Journalist Anna Politkovskaya was murdered after investigating the brutal tactics that Putin was using against separatist insurgents in the Russian region of Chechnya. And Alexander Litvinenko, a former intelligence officer turned critic of Putin, was murdered in London with radioactive polonium. In 2008, NATO, this alliance of countries that are committed to defend each other in the event of war, made a promise to Georgia and Ukraine that they would eventually become members. And Putin was infuriated by previous waves of NATO expansion that had brought the alliance right up toward Russia's borders. The idea that Ukraine, in particular Ukraine, which he has always viewed as inextricably linked to Russia, would be in an American-led alliance, would potentially have NATO troops on its soil. This was something that was completely unacceptable to Putin. But he actually made his first move into Georgia, another former Soviet republic that was now looking west. Soon after that promise was made, Putin sent in the tanks. He said he was provoked. He carved up two independent so-called republics in Georgia. He didn't go all the way for the capital. He pulled back out. But that's a playbook you'd see again six years later in Ukraine. Putin had completely taken over the Russian political system. He'd showed his muscles on the global stage. But Putin back in 2008 was somebody who was still paying attention to term limits. So he gave up the title of president, but hardly any of the power behind it, and became prime minister. And so human seat warmer Dmitry Medvedev was in office when Obama came in with a literal reset button for Russia presented by then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, to try to say, let's get relations back on the right foot, even if Putin's lingering in the background. I wanted to uh, present you with uh, a little gift, which represents what President Obama and Vice President Biden and I have been saying. And that is, we want to reset our relationship. One key moment that we maybe didn't even appreciate how important it was at the time was when Putin announced plans to run for president again. So it's 2011 into 2012, and there are these big protests. Young people in Moscow and St. Petersburg were rising up, saying they didn't want Putin back in the Kremlin. Here's BBC footage from the time. The police have been telling the crowd all afternoon that this is an illegal meeting. It, it looks as if the right police intend to clear the whole square now of protesters. Meanwhile, we hear that the opposition activist and anti-corruption campaigner Alexei Navalny has been detained by police just up the road. Uh, from here, he's the man who called people onto the streets 
not only in Moscow today, but across Russia. But Putin never saw it as a homegrown phenomenon. He thought this was being directed from Washington. He thought in particular that Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was trying to foment these protests against him. And I talked to Ambassador Mike McFaul, who was in Moscow during the Obama presidency, and he told me that when he heard Putin say these things, he thought, he doesn't believe this, it's posturing. And then he got in the room with Putin and U.S. officials, and Putin continued to say this to senior Americans, to say that the CIA had been plotting against him. And suddenly McFaul took a step back and thought, maybe this guy's a little bit more paranoid and maybe a little bit more dangerous than we thought. By this time, this is the Putin you see today. His shoulders slouched, he's grumpy, he's antagonistic toward the West. In fact, he's basing a lot of his worldview and his politics around the idea that it's Russia against the West. That brings us to 2014. And there are these massive protests in Ukraine, basically against the fact that the then president, Viktor Yanukovych, wanted to pull Ukraine back toward Russia. There were lots of protesters, in Kyiv in particular, who didn't want to go back, who were looking to the West. And Putin was looking very closely at Ukraine, and he didn't like what he was seeing. Crimea is a peninsula in southern Ukraine. If you ask Vladimir Putin, it's always been part of Russia, and it was sort of a historical accident of the Soviet era that it ever fell within Ukraine's borders. It's a place where there are lots of Russian speakers. It's a place of tremendous importance to the Eastern Orthodox faith. And it's the place that Vladimir Putin decided to move into and annex into Russia in 2014. Meanwhile, in Eastern Ukraine, he sent in what were referred to as little green men. These forces that weren't wearing Russian military uniforms, but were quite clearly there on Putin's orders. And before long, you had a war in the East between these Russian-backed separatists, backed actually with Russian forces and Russian weaponry, and they were fighting against the Ukrainian armed forces. That war continued for eight years, right up to 2022, when Vladimir Putin decided to make it a whole lot bigger. But there are two main protagonists to the war that's playing out in Ukraine right now. There's Putin, but there's also Volodymyr Zelensky. Zelensky was elected in 2019 overwhelmingly, despite the fact that the closest he'd ever been to politics was in pretending to be a politician. He was a comedian. He played a school teacher who accidentally became president on TV. He actually started a new party called Servant of the People, named after the TV show. And one of the main planks of Zelensky's platform was that he was going to work with Putin to come to some sort of resolution for the war in eastern Ukraine. By the time Zelensky was elected, you had a very different president in the White House. If you want to know about Zelensky, the right guy to talk to is my colleague, Jonathan Swan. Jonathan got to go to Kyiv and interview him in person. And Jonathan's also the right person to talk to if you want to know about Trump. You'll hear from Swan in just a bit. Welcome back. I'm Dave Lawler. Here's my colleague, Jonathan Swan. I'm Jonathan Swan, national political reporter with Axios. Last winter, shortly after Joe Biden was inaugurated, I flew to Kyiv to interview President Zelensky with our HBO crew and stayed in touch with him and his advisors and a few months later interviewed him again last spring with my colleague Dave Lawler. I suppose Zelensky first came onto my radar shortly before he got elected. My wife has done a lot of reporting on Ukraine and she told me about this comedian who might actually win the presidency and... We actually watched an episode of his show 
servant of the people. I, I sort of thought this is really strange. It was sort of this uh, obvious comparison to Donald Trump, you know, reality TV star turned president. Here you have a comedian who played president on TV become the president. And then after he came into office, Ukraine became the center of the American news cycle because Donald Trump's impeachment, his first impeachment, was precipitated by a phone call that Trump had with Zelensky in which he tried to pressure him into opening an investigation into the Bidens. And even if you weren't interested in foreign policy, you were forced to pay attention to Zelensky. Zelensky didn't want to become a player in the American election, so there was no prospect of interviewing him before the November 2020 election. But after the election, we started to talk logistics. And this is January of 2021. So it's COVID central, right? Everyone's got COVID. We hadn't been vaccinated yet. We'd just flown over um, for the United States. And there wasn't a mask in sight from memory. He certainly wasn't wearing one. I remember him coming up this winding stairwell and walking over to me and he was grinning. And I was used to people, you know, trying to elbow bump me, but, you know, sticks his hand out. And I must have for a second hesitated. We shook hands. He smiled and said, don't worry, I've had COVID. <laughs> so uh, that was my uh, introduction to, to Vladimir Zelensky. But it's a cliche, but, but it's what strikes you when you meet him, the sort of movie star looks and charisma that comes off him. He's, he's funny, he's warm, he makes jokes. Even after the interview, he sort of stayed and, and chatted to me a little bit. We're both Jewish and my family on my father's side comes from Odessa in Ukraine. So we talked about that a little bit, uh, not on not on camera or anything, but we had that connection. The other thing that really struck me about him, I was really struck by how alone he is. A and what I mean by that is you feel this really viscerally when you're over there, when you talk to him, when you talk to his advisors. Th this is a man and, and this is an administration that desperately wants to be part of the West, that really wants to be part of NATO, but they've been dragged along, slow walked, and basically rebuffed by the United States and, and the other major powers inside NATO, France and Germany. And you get a really visceral sense of how galling it is from their perspective because what they hear from the Americans and, and the French and the Germans and others that, you know, the reason you're not part of NATO, Ukraine, is because you need to you end your corruption or clean up your corruption and you need to modernize your military. And it's just horseshit. If they were actually honest, the truth is no one wanted to let them into NATO because they didn't want to provoke Russia. It's just BS. The Ukrainians, people forget this, but this is very much on their minds in government there, that they gave up their nuclear weapons in the 90s. They gave up their nukes, and they did so on the understanding that their territory would not be breached by Russia, and that was the understanding. I think that there's probably a lot of regret among some elements of the Ukrainian administration that they gave up their nuclear weapons because they might be in a bit of a different position with respect to Russia if they'd held on to them. At the time in 2014 when Russia invaded and took Crimea, Ukraine was all over the American news. You had the then Obama administration issuing statements of condemnation. 
there was a lot of attention and focus in the United States on Ukraine. And then, as, as happens, people lost interest and they moved on. But the Ukrainian people didn't move on. They, they were stuck with this reality. People were dying. And this was the, the simmering war that Zelensky inherited when he took office. And what he really was trying to get across in that interview with me is like, pay attention it was really a cry for the, for the West to pay attention to this situation that was happening in his country. You can hear it in the tape. Mr. President, why we are not in NATO yet? Do I understand you correctly? If Ukraine is not allowed into NATO, then there's no way of getting Russia out of your country. If Ukraine had been a NATO member, there would have been no escalation in the East, in the Donbass region. They would have to defend you. Yeah. Da, yeah. Da, it's yes, problem. and rightly so, because we are now defending Europe. Be that as it may, we are grateful to Europe for their help, for the sanctions. We are grateful to the United States. Sanctions are important, but you cannot restore human lives using sanctions. We'd heard about Russia for three years with Trump, you know, the Russia investigation, da, da, da. It was almost a parlor game in Washington and sort of talked about in, 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 almost with no stakes attached to it on cable shows every night. But here was a guy who Russia was not some theoretical bogeyman. It was, it was a country directly menacing his own country, a country with much more might and power. And yes, the United States was sending weapons and he was very grateful for that and made sure he said that. But really, they weren't willing, the United States and nor were the Europeans, to give him the one thing that Zelensky wanted, which was membership of NATO and genuine protection against Russia. I asked him about Donald Trump, and it was this sort of weird moment because usually politicians have these lines prepared and they just click into autopilot, and it was clear... He's not a script... He, he really improvises, you can tell. There was a few messages he'd probably rehearsed that he wanted to say, but... He's much more willing in an interview to listen and to answer. And yes, we're working through a translator, but this was one of those things where I knew he understood me. I watched his face when I was talking. He, he knew, he understands a fair bit of English. And, you know, he just had this sort of wry smile and it was this weird moment where, of silence, he kind of paused and I guess calibrated what he would say. I can see you're angry with President Trump. Maybe a little bit, huh? A little bit. <laughs> I, I think one thing that's important to note is that even though Donald Trump was rhetorically friendly towards Putin, even stood beside Putin in Helsinki, I, I was in the room and, and sided with Vladimir Putin over the US intelligence community. Notwithstanding all of that, in terms of substance, Donald Trump was actually pretty tough on Russia. He signed off on, reluctantly, but still did, signed off on tough sanctions against Russia. And he did more than Barack Obama did in terms of deciding to send lethal weapons to Ukraine to help them fight against the Russians. So it's a complicated picture. It's not as simple as saying that Donald Trump was, uh, you know, this complete lackey for Putin. As it relates to the relationship Donald Trump had with Zelensky, that 
went off the rails for a very specific reason. Donald Trump tried to draw Zelensky into American domestic politics. He tried to use Zelensky as a tool to help him get reelected. And he held up aid that was promised to Ukraine, and he pressured Zelensky to open an investigation into the person he most feared running against on the Democratic side, Joe Biden, for the actions of his son, Hunter Biden. And Zelensky resented that. He really resented that as a new president who wanted to have an above-the-board relationship with the United States, who wanted to have a relationship of mutual respect, who was had really serious asks to make of Donald Trump to help him defend himself against Russia. Here he was being dragged into a scuzzy American political operation run by Rudy Giuliani and other characters in Donald Trump's orbit. He resented that. And what happened was when this blew up and became the subject of an impeachment investigation and and an impeachment trial ultimately into Donald Trump, Trump basically cut off contact with Zelensky. The US-Ukrainian relationship at the top level anyway, the leader level, was virtually non-existent for the last year of the Trump presidency. And that hurt. The, The Ukrainian administration didn't have that warm relationship that Zelensky wanted to have at the top level. And so it was really just in a holding pattern for the rest of the Trump presidency. And they were just waiting to see whether a new administration would bring about a new era of US-Ukraine relations. I think many people, probably myself included, underestimated him. And it's been quite extraordinary to watch him in the last couple of weeks, just his personal courage just his personal bravery. And I think have really confounded some people who dismissed him as a, a lightweight comedian dilettante. I, I've, I'm finding this really hard to watch because it wasn't just foreseeable, it was foreseen. And he was not whispering these fears. He was yelling them for anyone who would listen. And here we are. And we're watching this slow motion convoy head towards Kyiv. And I know people in Kyiv and they're with their families and they're wondering whether they're going to take their guns out onto the streets to fight. And we're having this sort of very detached foreign policy conversation here in Washington, but it's imminent and frightening for a whole lot of people um, and some people that I personally got to know. Hi again, it's Dave Lawler. Let's fast forward to the spring of 2021, just a couple months into Joe Biden's presidency. That's when Vladimir Putin started sending troops to the border between Russia and Ukraine. There was a summit between the two presidents in June in large part to try to resolve that issue, but it didn't resolve anything. Still, it seemed like the situation might be ratcheting down. Putin cycled out some of those troops, but he also published an essay in July called 
on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians. This was a 5,000-word alternative history take from Putin, basically on why Ukraine was always part of Russia. And I think that was one of the best indications we got of what Putin's true intentions were here. By the fall, troops were continuing to go to the border, and we started to get warnings from U.S. intelligence, not only that Putin was amassing even more troops at the border, but that he might really intend to invade Ukraine. From that point on, you had a steady drumbeat. The troop numbers continued to rise. The warnings from U.S. intelligence were getting more and more dire. While this was going on, there was vigorous diplomacy meetings between U.S., European, and Russian officials to try to figure out if there was some off-ramp they could offer Vladimir Putin that he would be willing to take. But one place they weren't willing to go was to say that Ukraine would never become a member of NATO, and those were words that Putin really wanted to hear. And then we started to hear from Putin himself. He started to talk about Ukraine. He started to talk about the leadership in Ukraine. He called them Nazis. He started talking about the fact that he really didn't view Ukraine as a country. This is in the, the last couple of weeks. Незамедлительно признать независимость и суверенитет Донецкой Народной Республики и Луганской Народной Республики. At that point, it seemed like Putin may have missed every diplomatic off-ramp, but I was still calling experts in Russia and around the U.S. and Europe, and I was asking them, do you really think this is going to happen? Putin gathered up all of his security chiefs on television in one room. He was sitting 20 or 30 yards away from the look of it on TV, he asked these people to get up one by one and tell him what they thought he should do next. He bullied them. He steered them all to this quote-unquote unanimous decision, which was to recognize the independence of these so-called republics in eastern Ukraine. It was surreal to watch because we looked at some of these people as very influential, shrewd operators, you know, at the top of the Kremlin hierarchy. But we were watching them on video just shrivel in front of Vladimir Putin. This intelligence chief, this guy who was a former KGB veteran himself, viewed as one of the most fearsome characters in the Putin regime. And we learned that this was a guy who Putin probably had no respect for, was not listening to. Putin is asking him, what should we do next? And he's terrified, he's stammering, he can't get the words out. He misspeaks at one point and says Russia should just annex part of Ukraine, which is not the answer Putin wanted to hear, until eventually Putin said, do you agree with me? And he said yes. And that was the end of it. Putin effectively declared war on Ukraine early in the morning of Thursday, February 24th. After he finished speaking, there were explosions in Kyiv and elsewhere. We were hearing about sirens sounding. It was clear that all of Ukraine was under attack. On the next episode of How It Happened, Putin's Invasion, we'll break down what we know about what happened on the ground in Ukraine in the early morning of February 24th and what's played out on the ground since. We'll unpack how the world has responded and we'll examine why pushing back on Russia is so complicated and why changing Putin's course has thus far proved impossible. How It Happened, Putin's Invasion was produced by Naomi Shaven with help from Sabina Singani. Julia Redpath is our executive producer. Allison Snyder is our editor. Sarah kehilani Gu is our editor-in-chief. Mixing, sound design, and music supervision by Alex Sugiura. 
Additional mixing by Jake Cherry. Original music by Michael Hunt. Special thanks to Jonathan Swan, Sarah Fisher, Zach Basu, our Axios Today colleagues, and to Axios co-founders Jim Vandehei, Mike Allen, and Roy Schwartz. I also want to thank our colleagues outside of the newsroom who worked with us to make this season possible, especially Lucia Orejarena. I'm Dave Lawler. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.